The Get This Podcast is brought to you by ProPhotoGo.com, professional photography on demand. Use coupon code GETTHIS to get 10% off your professional photo session. So whether you need new headshots or you have a big event coming up, an engagement, a wedding, you name it, or let's say you just want new photos so you can look snazzy on social media, ProPhotoGo is professional photography on demand. Use coupon code GETTHIS and get 10% off. Go to ProPhotoGo.com. The Get This Podcast is also brought to you by WP Engine, the best WordPress hosting available. People who know me know I build enterprise-level WordPress websites that reach millions of people a year. And it's important that those sites live at a host that is secure, fast, and offers the kind of support you need 24-7. And I can't recommend WP Engine enough. I use them exclusively and recommend them to all of my clients. Get 10% off your first year of exceptional hosting for your WordPress website. Go to getthispodcast.com slash WordPress, and that will trigger the 10% off coupon. Again, it's getthispodcast.com slash WordPress. things people love and I'm joined tonight by a very special guest my my mate my old buddy Brad Kelly coming from Michigan how are you Brad what's Good, going man. on man not a lot not a lot new digs from the last time we've talked in this format yeah yeah Tuesday I'm living, in, I'm living like practically on a golf course now this is a gross <laughs> point it's ridiculous over here okay all right yeah yeah. yeah, it's not bad. It's not a complaint. It's just weird for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was saying Tuesday, May 21st, and I'm in New York City. Brad's in Gross Point, Michigan, right? On a golf course, yeah. apparently. Very close to a, like, surprisingly close to a golf course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> can you hear the golfers golfing? No, but on my drive home, I occasionally see golf balls on the street. <laughs> That's well. That's where they belong. It's better that than like in your windshield, right? Coming down, raining yeah. like hail. No, that. Big that to honking chunks of hail. <laughs> yeah. All right. What are we talking about tonight, Brad? So the the show is about things people love. I ask every guest to come on and tell me something they want to discuss. Uh, it could be yeah. a book. It could be a movie. It could be both. Yeah, I so I suggested and and I sort of did this. Um, it's hard to choose those kinds of things, but I just decided in to pick as quickly as I could. Uh, no Country for Old Men, right? So you Book and movie. Ah, uh, so yeah. You, yeah, that's what I was sort of saying. You, yeah, so you yeah, flipped yeah, a yeah. coin. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it's just like the first thing that came to mind. So, but you know, it's it's it, it's a good book. You know, it, it's a good book. It's one of the best movies mm. i would mm. like nothing wrong with the book per se but the film i think shit is the, probably the best thing made since i've been an adult or very much close to the top so you know our favorite uh minnesota brothers the besides the Kautzmans, 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're from North Dakota. No, I don't think I don't think Minnesota owns us yeah. that much. You North know? Dakota I think is a, isn't North Dakota a suburb of Minnesota. Okay, all right, slow down. <laughs> uh no but you know coen Coen brothers film you know they've made a lot of great movies and there's certainly a debate to be had about whether or not no country for old men is their best i you know as i get older i'm less and less interested in superlatives i don't know if any you can ever say anything is the best but um fact certainly had an effect on me i you know it was one of the few movies that i went to see twice when when it was out in theaters uh, first time just had me at the edge of my freaking seat. And I remember I went with a handful of people that ended up being pretty good friends of mine in Boise, Idaho, but I, who I didn't know all that well at the time. And, you know, kind of hipster dudes and, you know, maybe not guys that were that much into, you know, didn't necessarily read or, you know, were into more sort of like hardcore, uh, rock music kind of culture, you know, scene kind of scene kids. Sure, sure. And I remember being halfway through and being like, man, they're going to think this movie sucks. I was gripped, but I was like, I think they're going to think this sucks. And at the end, we all just kind of looked at each other like wide eyed, like, oh, my God, I can't. <laughs> what did they <laughs> tell just everybody's heart. <laughs> yeah. do? Tell everybody's heart had been in their throat for like the whole thing. And I've always been fascinated with the like the burn of suspense that runs through the whole thing no cheap there's no like real cheap suspense in it because there's like a very you know as a as a writer there is there is there are ways to develop suspense that are i don't i almost said cheap i don't even necessarily mean cheap but there's like a classic action film way of making suspense work right where it's like you've got the the ticking clock is not a metaphor. It's like <laughs> all, a whole bunch of things have to tie together at the, at the exact right moment. It doesn't seem like it's going to happen. And then in the last second, it finally does. No Country for Old Men is just like this slowly rising fever for two hours. Yeah, basically. yeah. The ticking clock is America. The ticking yeah. clock is <laughs> the Vietnam War <laughs> in <Yeah>. the background. <laughs> right. It's a, right. It's a Vietnam War film. It is, yeah, in, yeah. in its own and, right, mm-hmm, and it's a western, mm-hmm. and it's it's uh it's uh it's a like a gangster movie. It's in, it's in kind of Rambo in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've definitely thought about this interpretation you're talking about with the Vietnam, the Vietnam thing, and it's only really mentioned kind of once that he's a Vietnam vet, but and the main talking one of the. Three main characters, Llewellyn Moss, was a Vietnam vet, served two tours, as we see in the film. He tells the border agent. And yeah, uh, let's, if I may, let's just yeah. say spoilers. If you've seen sure. it, or if you've not <laughs> yeah. seen it, rather, yeah, maybe Spo- watch yeah, it. We're, gonna, yeah, probably, we're just going to talk about this film for the duration of this podcast. Nah, maybe yeah. not the duration, but for a, a hefty uh, chunk of it. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, no, there's definitely this thing of like, he's a, um, yeah, he's a Vietnam vet. He's a welder. We learn that he's a very skilled welder. And I'm not remembering now if this is clear in the movie, but I know it's clear in the book that at the moment he's unemployed. During the course of the film, he actually has lost his job for whatever reason. Sure. You know, he's, li- he's living in a trailer and, you know, bumfuck Texas, basically. Right. And you see that he has found a way to actually apply some of the skills that America has given him. Um, <laughs> well, he's out hunting. You get the impression he's he's out hunting, probably to eat. 
Right, right. Yeah, probably. I mean, it would be your unemployed dude living in Texas and you shoot down an antelope or whatever it was that he was hunting. That's, um, you know, that's a that's a few months worth of dinner. Something. So, yeah. 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 And there's a lot of things that, I mean, you talk about him being out there hunting. There's a lot of things. You go right back to that first moment you see him and he shoots, I don't know, I think it's an antelope, I want to say. Yeah, something. I mean, it's a, yeah. yeah. There's this real nice moment, and I, I was watching this movie a few months ago with my girlfriend, and, and she's, you know, she, she enjoys movies, but sometimes I'll give her the insider sort of writer scoop. Like, I explained to her what a MacGuffin was the other day, you know? Oh, right. Just, just things like that. Just Maybe like, you can yeah, explain this- it to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't, you can't drop that on a podcast and not give your explanation. Yeah. Well, okay, the MacGuffin is, and in, in, correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm interpreting this inc- yeah. wrong, but, like, the MacGuffin is essentially, it's usually an object of some kind. They only serve in which, until 11. What's that? <laughs> <They only serve. laughs> that's, why I, that's why Taco Bell stock is going up, because the, they'll serve that MacGuffin all day long. It's that egg MacGuffin. <laughs> <laughs> egg MacGuffin? That's pretty funny. <laughs> can, can, can I, is that a show title already? That is a, that is a show title. All right. That's pretty fucking great. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, but you well, were, the, so you were saying. The MacGuffin is the thing in a movie that basically all of the characters are willing to do anything to get their hands on, the bad guys and the good guys. But it's ultimately know? meaningless. The thing itself is, it's like a, well, maybe yeah. maybe or maybe not. It depends on the yeah. film. But I think it depends on the genre. I mean, most of the time in like a crime movie, it's just money. Right, you know, it's a big bunch of money, which well, it is. It is in No Country for Old Men as well. A good example would be the famous briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Great MacGuffin, yeah, intentionally yeah, and, made just to be. Yeah, and the name, right? And that was that was his sort of pomo touch was that nobody really wasn't even clear what was in the MacGuffin. You know, wasn't money? It wasn't money. It was some sort of radiant, eminent thing. But like another example would be, I was realized we watched Infinity War not that long ago, the Avengers movie, Mm -hmm. and there's five MacGuffins in Infinity War because he's trying to collect all of these stones, essentially. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. The MacGuffin's actually named after a model of briefcase. Right. It it, it comes from Hitchcock, right? Yeah, but there was a a briefcase you could buy at the time, what was called like the MacGuffin. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Okay. And then they used that in, in, I believe, a Hitchcock movie, and so it became a MacGuffin. The MacGuffin. Great. So you were talking to your girlfriend, you were watching No Country, and you explained the MacGuffin. Yeah, so explain the MacGuffin, and then the other thing we talked about was um, there's this moment where Llewellyn Moss, very early in the movie, you see him, he shoots this antelope. And then one of his first actions after that is he picks the shell casing up off the ground and puts it in his shirt pocket. And it's this little nod. Like a lot of movies will introduce a character and they'll tell you they're the good guy by they like they save an orphan or Mm -hmm. something grand. This is just a subtle little etiquette gesture Mm -hmm. that suggests that he's at least got some kind of ethical structure that he lives by. Completely agree. A little more than that is that as a good hunter, he's not he, – because he wounds the animal. Yes. Yeah, he's dissatisfied with that. Yeah. He, yeah, he's not happy about that. Despite the fact that he shouldn't go after it for his own sake, he goes after the animal. So it's this sublime mm-hmm. irony. Um, mm-hmm. Or it, yeah, it's like a character nod. It's like, yeah, 
He's yeah. he's killing the thing, but he it's this thing. It's it's like the Rogan stuff where he's always talking about ethical hunters. So this guy is right. ethical on some level. Yeah, 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 yep, he is. He is. And it's also also I think comes about when he. I mean, his that 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 ethical standpoint is what ultimately gets him in the most yeah. trouble. Really, right. um, that's where they really get. I mean, they that's where they really get on his case, right? Is because he ends up he ends up going back. Um, uh, to you know, give water to that guy that he found in the truck who was sort of mortally wounded. Um, right. In in one reading of it, you could also read, and I'm just having this idea as we talk. Sure. You could also read that he's conflicted and mm-hmm. he knows there's something. Mm-hmm. He, he he goes back and he gives the man water, so we're we're attached to him. It's you know, he's obviously the hero. He's mm-hmm. it's a save the cat moment, uh, right? And but he's ultimo hombre, right? Yeah. Where's the yeah. last man? There had to Where's be somebody. So he knows, ah. It, yeah, there's he... some loose There's some loose end to mm-hmm. it. Yeah, yeah. He, well, and, and the interesting thing. He's not a white a, knight. Yeah, that's true. And, and yeah, that, he's not a white knight. And there's an interesting thing, too, about the fact that if you really think about the plot of it, if he, if he didn't go back, they would have found him anyway because of the transponder in the briefcase. Oh, right. Of course. So he doesn't, from a plot standpoint, in terms of like Anton Chigurh and all that totally. getting in his case, he doesn't even actually have to you're, go back. You're actually right. You're right. I had forgotten that he, I had forgotten that he, of course, this, I, I, yeah. I, I hadn't rewatched it since yeah. uh, you said we were going to discuss it. But of course, you're right. Yeah. He's, he has the briefcase. He goes back. Well, that's a good question. So why do you think he goes back? Is he objectively good? Is it just purity is he trying to clean up the mess why does he go back yeah yeah i i thought of it as him be, i thought of it, it that is being it's it's like okay so in a way you could think and i've never thought this before but now i'm trying to understand it there's like some way in which it inverts the um typical tragedy the tragedy is you have some kind of like hero and they have a flaw right that is you know, some kind of vice or some kind of weakness that they can't necessarily overcome. Now you've got Llewellyn Moss who's trying to be, he's essentially entering this criminal world and right. his tragic flaw is that he's actually fundamentally a decent guy. Right. right. So he can't actually operate very well in that world, which, you know, uh, Sheriff Ed Tom Bell is totally aware of this. Like he, from the get go, he doesn't think Llewellyn Moss is like an actual criminal. That's true. I think yeah. this is all in play, though, because when he goes back, getting even back to my original uh, sort of misconception, I think there is a kernel of truth around it, potentially, or at least something interesting to discuss. He comes back and he asks, he doesn't just give the guy water. He's mm-hmm. asking, where is the last man? There's always a last man. Yeah. And it's so great because through action, we're beginning to understand this is a man who's been in a firefight before. Mm-hmm. This is a man who sees seen it. Uh, yeah. Where would he have seen it? Well, we're we'll, we're going to figure it out eventually. Uh, yeah. Nom or whatever. And right. yeah, and so why in that moment? Why does he want to know? Is it is it for his own safety or is it because what is he really after in that moment? It's so interesting. Yeah, that is weird that he does go and he does go and track that guy down. It's like he knows. I 
Well, does he no, that's look? Where, that's, no, that's where he gets the briefcase. I'm Right. So that's the same day. He gets yeah, the briefcase. Earlier so, in the day. Yeah, yeah. So again, so rewinding, um, my original idea, I think is correct. He gets the briefcase from the last guy, right? Right. Right, so, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He pieced yeah. together that there was something missing, and I, I do remember him looking in the back of the truck, and there being heroin there. But I, and maybe right. he was actually looking for the was he actually looking for the money? I think, I think that's you know, I think yeah. gonna, this isn't a contest, but it's like, yeah, I, it's like, okay, so did he go back for the money? <laughs> right. Is this is right. did he have some idea that there was something? This yeah. could be his lotto ticket. So right. it's a it's a right. troubled character, and that sure. setup yeah. is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. There's cool things they do in character. They do in characterization too. You know where you. Um, one thing I'm really fascinated with about that movie is this, like, the way in which it shows. And Cormac McCarthy does this in his writing all the time. The way he, in which he shows uh, character and competency through just like people just. They just. This sounds kind of silly when it comes out of my mouth, but. They he just shows people doing things, and the explanation is very very minimal. So, for instance, there is this scene where Llewellyn Moss is following; he's trying to find the guy with the money, and he sees somebody sitting under the tree. So, what does he do? He squats down, he watches him, he looks at his watch, and he waits for some amount of time to go by while he's just watching the guy from a distance, mm-hmm. and then he moves in. There's no explanation. He doesn't he doesn't have somebody he's talking to who says, "Oh, we're gonna watch this guy. We're gonna <laughs> right. wait." Just that, does it. I'm yeah. I'm reconstructing the beats of this. So he goes, yeah. he sees the scene. Mm-hmm. Is there a guy? So there's a guy in the truck. This yeah, is actually so the, an interesting he, exercise. Yeah. So when he first sees the scene, when he first mm-hmm. see, um, comes across the scene where there's all the trucks and everybody's been shot, he that's when he sees the guy in the in the in the truck who's still alive but has been like mortally wounded, right? Right, and he says, ultimo hombre, ultimo hombre, yeah. agua, agua. And then yeah. he tracks the guy to this tree. Right, who's already, who died. And, mm-hmm. You know, he had managed to get away some distance yes. and then died under, with all the money. Of course. So then Llewellyn gets the money and goes home. Mm. And then, and then in the middle back. of the night, he wakes up mm. and goes back out there to give that guy water. And that guy is now dead. Right. And then you get one of the greatest single, single shot scenes, I think, ever which is Llewellyn Moss running across the fucking desert as the sun is coming up as lightning is striking getting shot falling down into a ravine <laughs> running into a river swimming across the river being chased by a pit bull getting out of the getting out of the water just in the nick of time taking out his gun blowing in the chamber racking one round and shooting the dog as it jumps on it it's, it's, not, it's not one shot is it it's, no, it's, it, not no, it's, it's like a the sequence run, the run is one shot yeah. um, until he hits the ravine but um it's just it's i mean as a somebody i mean i'm not a cinematographer but i can imagine as a cinematographer you capturing a perfect shot as the sun is rising and lightning is striking wow but that has got to just give you a fucking boner (laughs) (laughs) yeah right right Wow, I love this. I, I'm really glad that we reconstructed it because my memory is a little foggy, but it, I love this film. Yeah, I've, I've, it, I've watched it like a kid watches, uh, I don't know, what do kids watch now? What, what You know, when you were a kid, you used to watch the same movie like every other week. They you remember watched, that? Well, Jaws was mine, man. Yeah, I was yeah. very <laughs> troubled. I was afraid to get in the bathtub. <laughs> you know what's funny is we were talking about that. My girlfriend and I were talking about that like at some point. I feel, I feel like a, the few other people we're talking about what movies we watched over and over as a mm. kid. Mm. And this is kind of fucked up. But all I could remember was RoboCop and Die Hard. <laughs> 
probably explains your haircut. Just bald, shaved head. Never gets old. It's great radio. Brad Kelly's shaved dome. Well, so so many things come to mind. Uh, Why then? Let's speculate. Why does he go back? Is it the... And I think this gets into the the concept of him being a Vietnam veteran and a good character, fundamentally. Right, right. But he goes back. He brings water back. He even says, damn it. He's yeah. like fixing to get fixing to Yeah, get I'm going to do about to do something dumber in hell, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. 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 I think I always read it as a compulsion, like just a general mor- moral, moral compulsion. Because he already had the money at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think, but you know, that's a little bit of a, maybe a simple reading, but you know, there is something that's interesting that this and a couple of other moments show that Llewellyn Moss is this guy who kind of operates on like instinct. There's always like, there's like subconscious drives that are mostly driving him. So Mm -hmm. he wakes up in the middle of the night and goes, okay. And then he goes and does it later on in the movie when he's been sort of almost caught a couple times by Anton Chigurh and the other guys. Right, like like he thought he had gotten away and he's in this hotel room and they kind of catch him. And then there's another time where he, they like almost gets caught and he's like, it, him, it doesn't make any sense because he's been driving back roads of Texas going all over the place. And he wakes up in the middle of the night and he goes, oh, okay. And he starts going through the money. Right. And that's when it's he like his, out that he's, he's operating on some subconscious, yeah. instinctive yeah, plane. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely stuff going on, definitely stuff going on in the background for sure. They create this situation where you rooting for him as the hero. You say, "Don't do that. What right. are you doing?" Right. Right. Get out of the right. water. Yeah. <laughs> Don't yeah, go on yeah. the boat. It, it's yeah, that, it's yeah. that irony where the yeah. you play the audience kind of both ways. Right, right. And and you know the thing is it's like hmm you wonder in this sort of like, well, why does he? Why do we want? Why do we want him to have the money more than anybody else? You know? Right. It's really like from a rat, totally rational. Because he's standpoint. willing. To, I mean, in in that moment, that great save the cat moment where he he mm-hmm. goes back and brings the water to the guy. You yeah. are, and it's the antelope and everything, and he he's a good guy, so yeah. you want him to have it. But in a way, you. Watching you, there's this inevitability to it that has the ring of tragedy. Right, right. You you know, and in a way, you know he knows he probably ought not have it. Yeah, I mean, he gets in over his head and then he just keeps going and going and going and going. And it does end up taking this sort of egotistical turn toward the end. Like, right. So, like, you know, he's he's. She, later on down the road, he has a confrontation with Anton Chigurh, who's one of the great villains of in movie history, in my opinion. And he he gets shot up, and he ends up in this Mexican hospital. And Anton Chigurh calls him and says, "You better come see me." And you know, he says, "Ah, uh, you know, I, I can spare your wife's life, but I can't spare." Uh, Anton Chigurh says, "If I can spare your wife's life, I can't spare your life. That's the best that I can do." And well, Moss is like, you're not going to have to, you know, he's like, I'm going to make you a special project. He's yeah. enraged by this. Yeah. And he's like going to yeah. win in quotes, you know, right. but it's, you know, and then the, the, the mm-hmm. fucking irony is that Anton Shakur doesn't even get Llewellyn Moss in the end. Mm. When so you, it's the other quote, it's the other Mexicans that do. Right, 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 right. right. There's, 
when you analyze it with the Vietnam lens on, it's mm-hmm. one of the great Vietnam war films. For sure. It's, yeah. it's Rambo. It's the guy yeah. who comes home and is living out this trauma that we sort of put on another country. Right. You know, speculatively, but well, you can't, it's, it's real. It's really hard to tell a heroic story. It's difficult to tell a heroic story about American combatants in Vietnam. Like yeah. actually there on the scene. It's kind of, right. it's kind of sticky, especially you know? now. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the only way to tell that story is, you know, is to tell the story of these guys when they come back for sure. What, and this is the a question that I've had in mind all day, knowing we were going to talk about this. What the hell is this film actually about? So putting the <laughs> Vietnam angle yeah. aside, what is this actually about? Why is it, you know, uh, why is the book called No Country for Old Men? Yeah. No, no Country for Old Men, I believe, comes from, um, is it a Yates poem? <laughs> Maybe. Um, it's that poem that's uh, slouching toward Bethlehem, uh, ever in the turning and turning in the ever widening gyre there uh there the center cannot hold that poem i believe it says no country for old men somewhere in that poem mm, i did not know that sailing yeah. to byzantium yates it's always yates yeah yeah mm. yeah crazy occult like you know mm. yeah i you know I, the no country for old men the hmm. Well, part of the narrative and, you know, the character that is easy to forget because he doesn't seem he's he's almost doesn't matter from a plot standpoint is Mm. the sheriff is the sheriff. He's clearly the third hand in the story. But like if you actually look at the plot, it doesn't matter if Sheriff Ed Tom is in in the movie or not. Mm. Nothing. He doesn't actually impact what happens to and with Anton or what happens with Llewellyn Moss almost at all. But he's the old man, you know, the opening thing is him talking about this kid he sent to the, who he sent to the uh, electric chair. Um, he's talking about the old sheriffs that he used to know that sometimes they didn't even carry guns. Yeah. You know, and the, then later, mm, yeah. The yeah. impotence of narration mm-hmm. in the face of this mm-hmm. primal yeah. evil, yeah, which is inscrutable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. That's the thing that he doesn't, I think he doesn't know. You know, uh, one of the great scenes, possibly maybe the best scene that you could just take out and it could be its own short film by itself, doesn't need the rest of the movie and it's just fucking great, is I don't know if you remember near the end when uh, this is Tommy Lee Jones character, when he goes to see, it's like his cousin or something like that. Oh, sure. Yeah. The old man in the yeah. trailer way out in the middle of nowhere. Right. Who's right. Had coffee on the pot for four days. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. He's got a bunch of cats and he doesn't know how many, <laughs> you know, lost yeah. count. Oh, and then he talks oh. about, he talks about Tommy Lee Jones father, that character, I think his father's grandfather, somebody yeah. in their lineage who got shot by some marauders or something like that. And, you yeah. know, he's trying to explain to him that like nothing's actually changed. This is all, this is all just the, this is all the story of this part of the world. Sort of like everybody's always getting shot on their front porch. <laughs> which is Mm. which is an interesting you know obviously it's kind of a cynical theme but um it reminds me of this so Cormac McCarthy has not done a lot of interviews um but there is a quote 
I should look it up because it's fucking good. There's a quote from this Cormac McCarthy interview that he did like in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to try to not use my clicky keyboard. Yeah, you radio. find that. And I'm going to read the first uh, stanza of Sailing to Byzantium by, uh, who's this guy? William Butler Yeats? Some some poet from Ireland. Some poet, dude. I don't know. And he says, that is no country for old men, the young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song, the salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, fish, flesh, or fowl, commend all summer long, whatever is begotten, born, and dies, caught in that sensual music, all neglect, monuments of unaging intellect. Interesting. Hmm. Mm. Huh. Mm. Yeah, that is no country for old men. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So there's a here's a quote that this this uh, that scene with his cousin or whoever it was reminds me of from this Cormac McCarthy interview. This is back when he near the time of Blood Meridian coming out, and he says, Cormac McCarthy says, "There's no such thing as life without bloodshed." bloodshed i think the notion that the species can be improved in some way that everyone could live in harmony is a really dangerous idea those who are afflicted with this notion are the first ones to give up their souls their freedom your desire that it be that way will enslave you and make your life vacuous (laughs) 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 so that's interesting right because like you you generally think of like i i think the deep when you don't think about it too carefully a lot of art is sort of interested in this like you're telling the narrative arc you're telling your little piece of the narrative arc of humanity or something like there's generally a progressive trend to it and Cormac McCarthy is just saying no there is no progressive trend to it this is what this is this is what human beings are i think he leans pretty significantly more pessimistic than necessary but mm. there's there is something to that, right? Like there is, there are ways in which with the advent of like better technology, communications technology and better, you know, healthcare and whatever that we've gotten better. But then you like look at the nature of like discourse or I hate that word, but you look at like the nature of discourse now and it's hard to say that we've actually gotten any better in some ways. You know, people are still just as likely, just as looking, much looking for a fight, just as much looking for like drama and attention and, and, and a little violence, though that is increasingly metaphorical, you know, Hmm. so I don't know. Maybe he has a point. Yeah, I don't know either. It's we all, as long as we all come into the world the same way or in a more or less similar way and we all exit in the same way, finally. Yeah. Yeah, we're that essential humanity won't change. Uh, yeah, I, I it, yeah, and do you, and well then the th- and and this is what's this is what I think is the part that's interesting about it is he says your desire that it will be that it be that way will enslave you, right? So it's it's almost not that he's saying like yeah, I mean it's not that he's saying harmony living in harmony is stupid. It's that he's saying like. You're going against it. It will. It will kind of ruin your life in sort of unexpected ways. I read it politically to mean you'll look for a savior mm-hmm. outside of yourself. You'll look right. for a thing to right. uh, to either hide in or to take away the pain of that harsh reality from you. Right. So right. there. 
this is a fundamental, I, I agree with this philosophy. There is something to be said about staring into the intensity of the darkness, quote mm-hmm. unquote, of the situation and yeah. wrestling some kind of power from it right. by facing it. And right, absolutely. And conquering yeah. your fear and not uh, not saying, yeah. oh, the police will be there when I need it. Right. Or the, right? right. Now, of course, right. we, we respect the, you know, you want the plan if something went down, yeah. right? Like, I don't, yeah. No disrespect, but yeah. there's this philosophical kind of need to uh, right. handle it, yourself. It, yeah, and I think, you know, I think we all fall like somewhere different on, on the spectrum with that. And I, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I sort of, one thing that has bothered me, re, increasingly bothers me over time is whenever anybody just wants to make legislation to address things about human nature. Right. You know, where it's like, this is what people do, so let's make a law about it. And you're like, ah, sometimes that's going to work and sometimes that's not going to, like, that's right. just not going to work. And, you know, I'm not the arbiter of figuring out when it's going to work and when it's not, but... You know, there's always a there's always and we don't have to talk about a specific issue, but there's always something that happens in the news. And then somebody is like, we need to make a law about that. <laughs> right. Well, that's their like, that's a church. The the state and government for a lot of people yeah. is a church. It's, it's the yeah. answer. Oh, they're right. We're abortions and we don't like abortions. Let's make right. a law. Right. Ah! right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Ah! You know, like, as well, if yeah, well, yeah, you know, yeah. wade into that. Uh, make, yeah. There's so much in his writing. It's interesting because, uh, well, a thought that came to my mind is it's it's a bit it's an anti utopian idea. Mm-hmm. There's no utopia. You're oh, you're a person. The people around you are all people. Your parents, your siblings, your family, your colleagues, everyone you know is subject to this this bloody reality of life, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the the seeking for an escape from that is yeah is as he says is what potentially enslaves you. Well, and then there's the other side of that. It's, he's such an interesting writer. Yeah, oh, when yeah. when they sold uh, No Country to Old Men the rights to it, uh, the the Hollywood journalers or whatever it is, yeah, somebody recorded it saying, in what surely will be the easiest uh, uh, novel to film adaptation of all time. Uh, you know, No Country yeah. for Old Men was sold to the Coen brothers, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And of course, leave it to the Coens to make this thing that is, it, it began as a, as a film, if I'm not mistaken, the, I the think novel. He tried to, I think he tried to write it as a screenplay originally and right. then like, yeah, I think that's and my understanding. And it into a novel. So yeah. It, yeah. it's not surprising that it became this masterpiece and yeah. yet in the hands of lesser directors, Oh, you could, I mean, this could have been a schlock fat, like, yeah, yeah, any, I mean, I guess any, any basic material could be, you got fantastic acting performances, you know, everything, everything about it, in my opinion, is like, exactly what it should be. <laughs> it is like, yeah. you nailed yeah. it. What is yeah. it, what is it about it, though? I yeah. think about the palette when I think about it. Yeah, the colors are great. The humor, honestly, I think, I feel mm. like the humor is easily overlooked. It's really fucking funny in really subtle ways, you know. Um, most of that coming from Tommy Lee Jones' character, who's just, like, deadpan and dry and has these lists, like, quotables that ring through my head every now and then, you know, just... Um, he has his goofy deputy who... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you yeah. do not, for a minute, doubt uh, his Texas accent. Yeah. He's, oh, no, it's he's the real deal. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's yeah, really oh, yeah. from Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, it's man. fantastically done. Yeah, it, it, he, oh, man. Oh, yeah, the, hum- the humor, it's, it's funnier than you, you actually think. The acting is all fantastic. I mean, and you think of some of the other people who were in it, they play bit parts. Woody Harrelson has a fantastic bit part in it. Great turn. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Steven Root has a little tiny little bit that he plays in it. He's fantastic. Um, I feel like there's another one that I'm missing, but I think, yeah, it, it, it's a lot of it. A lot of it is, is the acting. I mean, Javier Bardem is. Yeah. When wins the Oscar oh. for a part where. Yeah. Barely any lines. <laughs> Just <laughs> mental. Yeah. 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 It was a pretty, it's and when pretty... you look at that on paper, do you think your agent passes that to you? your manager? Say this is the yeah. part for you. The Coens want to, yeah, of course, the Coens want to work with yeah. you. Blah blah blah. Or I don't know how that that process went, but we're going to audition yeah. you for this, and and yeah. I, it's just a case where on paper, do you think ah, I'm going to win an Oscar playing this part? I don't think necessarily. No, I don't, I don't think, think so. It's too. The whole thing is well, because I mean, you win Oscars for like. It's not a particularly it's not it's not a film that's pulling super hard at your heartstrings, you know. Or you know what I <laughs> yeah, mean? Yeah, no, like, no, no, hundred percent. Yeah, it's not no, like you know, we say. need somebody in this movie who knows how to cry on, you know, mm. who knows how to cry on cue or mm. whatever. And there's no and often I feel like a lot of times the awards get won. Maybe this isn't true. Maybe this is sort of my imagination. But it feels like awards get won by like so and so was playing a person who was like this, who had like some sure. Issue, there's always saying. right. You, you it know, depends. That was a very good year for American cinema, and I think that we bad. were. Was it 2007? Seven. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we yeah, were, there will be blood was out around the same time, which yeah. is a great example of. Uh, I think it's it's like um, the Wizard of Oz, which was shut out of the Oscars. Because of Gone with the Wind in the same year, right? Which any other right, year, it right. would have just swept. Yeah, yeah. I think it was a, a situation like that. Uh, yeah, which is that's crazy when you think about those two films coming out in the same year and kind of right. Uh, right. What a what a wonderful moment for yeah. for cinema. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, American cinema, and it it follows on the botched invasion of Iraq and all the rest and the anxiety about that and the the impending economic crisis and all the rest that time I think we can cast our minds back a dozen mm-hmm. years we can remember what that time felt like the anxiety everyone was feeling the right right the stress yeah. and both of these films are historical films mm-hmm. uh, yeah. even though yeah. no country this is another thing I really liked about no country for old men is that it comes out in the aughts it's a period piece, but it it doesn't feel like a period piece somehow. Yeah, it exists in this. It's time. really yeah. like you only really know it's a period piece when there are vehicles involved, and even then, not at first, because it's like, well, does Lon Wass what year truck would be? <laughs> right. I mean, is it surprising if you were driving a forty-year-old truck? Not really. Y- yeah, you don't so. notice it, and and it's interesting because had had a uh, had Mad Men taken off at that point i don't um, think so i feel like it was on maybe it had started that whole sure. nostalgic thing where 
the fetishizing of costume and well, mm-hmm. it's a different sort of film for sure. Right. But right. you just don't look at No Country for Old Men and go, "Oh, that's a period piece set in the '80s." Right. It's well, just sort yeah. of there. Yeah. 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 Well, and there's there's something about that that's maybe like some commentary on the uh, the aesthetics of rural areas anyway. Just mm. like. You know, mm. if you went to some rural parts of Texas, would people of a certain age basically look just like that? Probably. probably. Yeah. Right. I think that's yeah. it, too. It's, yeah. it's as if nothing has yeah. changed since then. So that that serves as a, as a metaphor of its own when you think about the time and, and our uh, misadventures. I say our, but the United yeah. States uh, misadventures right. in Iraq and the anxiety mm. about repeating Vietnam. Right. That was right. very much in play in – sure you know multiple levels there yeah 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 no there's definitely there's definitely a there's definitely a thing there and it is it is interesting that he he yeah thinking about it more through the lens of of the vietnam story you think okay so there's the viet there's the uh blatant vietnam touches of like him talking to the border patrol agent when he's trying to get back to the united states um, well, and then he somebody, talks to the Woody, if I may, he talks to the oh, Woody yeah. Harrelson character, who's, who's who is also a vet, and they relate on that. They relate yeah. and they don't. It's not yeah. like they were buddies who were in Normandy. It's right. just that uneasy. I right. can't, and Woody, uh, you know. Yeah, Woody Harrelson says something along the lines of just because, like, I don't. I wish I could remember it exactly, but he says, like, that doesn't make you like me. That doesn't basically. make you my buddy. Yeah, think, right. Yeah. Or yeah. no, it's vice versa. It's Llewellyn the reverse. That. Llewellyn says that. Right. Yeah. Are we supposed to be buddies or something? Yeah. 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 It's so much more in the film than meets the eye. Yeah. yeah. No, I think, I think that's there. true. Yeah. And then you realize how that's, this is how, yeah, he, he, this is how he knows how to do all of this stuff. It's probably how he knows how to soft that shotgun. And it's probably how he knows, um, uh, how to hide? I mean, when he hides the money in certain way, like there, I think it's where he learned like a lot of learned a lot of this stuff. And you know, you notice it too. As soon as he comes across these guns, he knows exactly how to handle them. He gets like a semi-automatic gun of some, like a machine gun of some kind, which I wouldn't know have any idea what to do with, even if I had it. And he's like immediately like checking to see if it's loaded, and you know, he knows had, he knows how to handle it. I had never made the Rambo. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's it's like a realistic it's, Rambo. It's kind yeah. Of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like Rambo doesn't kill seventy people or whatever. He he manages to like shoot one guy in the leg. Yeah. <laughs> the performance that you get out of Javier Bardem and the at the end when he gets hit, mm-hmm. t boned for no yeah. Reason. Yeah. And the randomness of it all. And there's just this look in his eye. And I don't know how they got the shot or what he was thinking or what he wasn't thinking, but he has this look almost. There's almost like an amused look. He mm-hmm. he looks like obviously he's in shock and it's just yeah, yeah. this is so perfect. Such a fun. Yeah, film. that touches on that. I'm glad you said that because in the book very early on, you know, when he in the movie, he escapes from he is he's. Uh, arrested and he escapes yeah you know so mm-hmm. he escapes in that great scene of strangling the guy with the handcuffs or whatever in the book it says that he wanted he allowed himself to be arrested to see if he could escape by an act of will wow so yeah like <laughs> so so that definitely does tail dovetail to the end where it's like oh here is an interesting challenge that i can see if i can handle 
Right. That's so yeah. fascinating. Yeah. yeah. You made a point at the beginning of the podcast, this episode, uh, that it's a case where the film exceeds the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't necessarily want to enter that debate, but it's, okay. it is one of the rare cases where you can say, maybe yeah yeah maybe. i think there's a case to be made which yeah. is which is i mean kind of crazy for me because i think of cormac mccarthy as sort of you know the, the 90s 2000s like yeah he's one of the greats he's on the, he's on the mount rushmore of american letters in my opinion so i don't um, i don't think it's a, it's not a competition it's just such an interesting yeah. thing that such greatness begets more greatness and, right and that right. they pulled it off without fucking the dog right right, <laughs> right? they right, got it right. right they got it right yeah. they took this source yeah. material that should be so who's gonna direct blood meridian almost in my opinion it's almost like it's just leave it TV. alone uh, it should be a tv show it definitely yeah. if they do it it's got to be like a one season series for sure i mean i don't know who i don't know who makes it it's it's darker than no country for old men by a lot there's some humor in it I don't. I don't know who. I don't know who I'm could do it. I'm kind of with you. I'm sure that somebody holds the rights to it or something. Yeah. I'm sure James all... Franco was talking about doing it at one point. I, I don't have any opinion on his directorial skills. I don't know if I've ever seen a movie he's directed or not. But anyway, I don't know. Could be interesting, I guess. I mean, yeah. I, don't, I guess I'm not against it, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know how you know how you would do it to improve things. Sure. The only person I can think of who could probably pull it off is not making those kinds of movies anymore. It's um, oh, what is his name? He's the guy who just made the Blade Runner sequel. Oh, right, right, right. Oh, damn. I'm totally blanking on his Let's name. Let's look right it now. up. Yeah, we still haven't answered the the question. Uh, what's it about? <laughs> what's, no, <laughs> what's no country for old men about? Yeah. Well, that's the one thing that I love about it. As on the surface, it's just a movie about like guns and drugs and crime and shit. You know, like there's like a like if you were to see it on your direct TV or whatever menu, mm. what would the description be? Like, I feel like it would just be like, uh, I don't know when dude when uh, war veteran Llewellyn Moss stumbles across a drug deal gone bad in the desert. Yeah. He bites yeah. off more than he can chew. Yeah, right? it would it would be something like that. I, it, yeah, and, like, uh, and I'd probably uh, just skip right past it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. yeah. Yeah. Right, I'll Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, I'll watch it. The the, yeah, the, yeah. the fellow you you were talking about who directed Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which I loved, that was fantastic. Is Denis Villeneuve? Yes, 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 yes. He's also making Dune right now. Oh, what? Yeah, what? Like so like a be- like a film or or TV series? Yeah, I hope film. it's a film. A film. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll be interesting. Yeah, cool. And he also made so the other thing is he made Sicario. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I don't know if you saw that. Sicario I did. is top notch, in my opinion. So mm-hmm. he could do Blood Meridian, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know who you get to that act would any be of those roles. Ambitious, but, yeah, ambitious yeah. to pull off. I want to play the dancing bear at the end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you just you know grow a little beard, mm. put, you know have a, have a couple cocktails on the way, and <laughs> yeah. Start eating spaghetti. Start eating some more spaghetti. I'll play the I'll play the boy and the dancing bear. <laughs> I really liked Blade Runner uh, twenty forty nine. I liked I thought it. it was fantastic. I thought it, yeah. it got 
it got like the only criticisms people had were that were slow moving, and I was like, well, Jesus Christ! That like, that, that criticism criticism means nothing to me. That here. that is a, a cue for me to run toward the film. Right. <laughs> Have you yeah. seen Barry Lyndon? Yeah. It was pretty slow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, okay. Yeah, yes, it course. was. Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. Indeed. Yeah. I suppose there are like th- I do think that slowness has to be earned to a certain extent, though. Right. Sure. Yeah. But but you're right. Like that is not to me that is not a valid criticism. So, right. Yeah. May yeah. I may I mention something that I saw recently? I sure. saw the Kubrick exhibition at the Design Museum. Over in London, and that's on until September, and it was amazing. If you there, there's a I don't know how these things work, but if it's like anything, uh, you know, sort of in this world, they typically move these things around because it's a lot to put these exhibitions together. Yeah, make their money back. Well. Yeah. Right, and, and they got it, and they want people to see it. I think so. I really, I yeah. really, you get the impression, and sure, there's there's plenty of money to be made here. Yeah, uh, but. It was wow, and if you get a chance to see it, uh, if it comes over to New York or wherever it wherever it would go here, I presume New York. Wow, really check it out. They had uh, it. It was immersive in a, in a sense. You know, you walked onto this carpet, and it was the carpet from The Shining. Ooh. Uh, and that's how you start, and all these yeah. little touches and these notes, and they had the typewriter from The Shining there. Nice. They had nice. the masks. Uh, from Eyes Wide Shut, all of these props and these Ooh. objects and yeah. the uh, statues from the Maloko milk bar from... Oh, no Buckler. shit. They had the big dick. They had the murder weapon. That's hilarious. <laughs> you know, I kind of... I remember at one point a few years ago wondering what happened to those statues. Just... They, yeah. What are they going to the, do? They're art objects. Uh, yeah. You have to hold on right. to those fucking things. Right, right. Yeah, you don't just toss them out. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, but they're also like, who, who would actually have the <laughs> furniture in their house? You know what I mean? Like, I would sure. love to have one because that would be a crazy thing to have, but I probably would not display it. <laughs> it would be my garage under a tarp. And yeah. <laughs> it was wild because I'm very fond of Jocelyn Pook, who's the musician who he tapped. Mm-hmm. You know about this because we're old mm-hmm. buddies, but he, yeah. he, uh, what are you? What does that make you, my buddy? <laughs> we were in Nam together, Brad. Um, but uh, this is crazy. I, I don't think I've told you this story. Uh, maybe I have. But I love her music. And obviously, I got turned on to it because of Kubrick. He used two of her tracks from her sort of original first album. I don't even know if it was an album before he used the tracks and she was writing music for theater and it's fantastic. And if you have seen Eyes Wide Shut, I know it's a little slow, but if you've seen (laughs) Eyes Wide Shut uh, and if you haven't, you should. The the famous scene with the chanting and the right before the orgy and then the orgy itself, he used two of her tracks. Mm. And I can't imagine what it would be like to have Kubrick Oh, God. Pull your music for his film, yeah. his final film. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she's made a career as a now as a person who scores for film and television. She scored. Had, the, had she scored anything before that? Theater. Okay. okay. Uh, theater yeah. and opera and stuff, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I think she's yeah. Canadian originally. Um, I, I, have to, I should know more because I've. There was a long time where I, I listened to those albums every week. Uh, and I wrote the one play listening to 
the her her follow up album almost exclusively. It was like the soundtrack for yeah. this play. So yeah. big fan, big fan. Didn't know that mm-hmm. they performed. I mean, you know, that she doesn't. She's just kind of like she's online, does, but she's not like posting on Instagram every day. Right. She's not right, right, Cardi right. B, right? <laughs> right? This, yeah. This. yeah. So anyway, uh, so I'm I'm going through the Kubrick uh, exhibition, and I'm coming out, and I start hearing this music. And there's chanting and there's music and I and I and there's like like a drum track, electro track in the back. And I'm like I'm looking around and that's Jocelyn Pook's music. That's mm. Jocelyn Pook. And I walk out and it's Jocelyn Pook and, and her ensemble warming up. No shit. Yes shit. That's awesome, man. Yes. That's fantastic. It was so cool. That's and so cool I got moment. to see them yeah. warm up and that that just meant the world to me. It was very yeah. it was a synchronicity without a doubt. Mm, and now awesome. now that i know that they're out there performing i'm gonna hunt them down uh, well i'm sure you could i'm sure at some point you can see them in new york i mean you you know think but it, they're not it's not like because i was over there to see dead can dance and i mm-hmm. saw them the next night uh yeah. it, it's not a band like that Although, right they're not they're not playing like a bar and <laughs> they're, they're not yeah. playing theaters they're not it's yeah. not that kind of group yeah. but and yet I, I hope that it, it's much, it's a little more elevated. It's so, sort of somewhere right. between like a, like a chamber orchestra and, and it's yeah. a, it's a weird ensemble too. I mean, she's got this lead, you know, this, this vocalist who's this, um, I think Indian fellow and he's, he sings, I think in Hindi and it's just this whole, anyway, man, it was such a great experience. Really and cool. if you get a yeah. chance to see the Kubrick exhibition, I mean, I would totally go see that if that comes around for sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, just, it's, it's really a destination kind of thing. Uh, yeah. and you know who yeah. my, my, it was my buddy, uh, shout out to Fraser Brown, my, my buddy over oh, in London, right. who was like, right on. all right, man, you gotta, you gotta do that. Uh, yeah. when I was over there, I love that sound because the bus I was taking would, mm-hmm. would go over Abbey road. <laughs> like it was nothing. And occasionally the bus would just slow down and yeah. in the middle of the day, you'd be like, what's going on with, all- oh, they're all taking the picture. Yeah. A million people taking that, that one picture. <laughs> yeah. 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 Useless. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Get, Get out of the road. <laughs> Why don't we do it in the road? That was the white album, right? Right. Different right. album. Yeah. 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 Well, let's we got another 10 minutes, Brad Kelly. Let's yeah. let's meditate briefly on No Country for Old Men and stay on topic, I think. It's Yeah. Um, so one yeah. thing that the one other I found I found the criticisms of the movie interesting. Um and and I, you know, the the one major criticism I heard of the movie was at the end, it just didn't make any sense. That the ending was stupid. Not only the not only the sh- the moment with Anton Shakur when he gets t boned, and then sort of walks off with a broken arm and sort of disappears back into the back into the environment because he's sort of a creature and not a man in some ways. So he's like, but it's like the creature of the Black Lagoon going back into the Black Lagoon in some ways. But then you have Ed Tom Bell who is retired and. The last moment, the last bits of dialogue of the film are him describing a dream and then it ends. Right, right. And people hated that. <laughs> like a lot of people hated it. And I get goosebumps during that scene. Mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly powerful. You know, not only Tommy Lee Jones's performance, but just the, me- the, the archetypal nature of the dream as described without being cliched or cheesy in any, in any way. It's not on the nose whatsoever. It's about him going to see his father, isn't it? Yeah. And then in some moment, you know, 
his father carries on past him with like a horn of fire, like a little horn where he's carrying embers and they're out riding on horses back in the old days. Mm. And his father just keeps going, you know? Yeah. It's not a, sorry, those are dogs going, these dogs going crazy. Don't apologize um, for life. Yeah. <laughs> they're hound dogs. It's all right. <laughs> they bark at everything. Oh, just, shit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, anyway, but that, that dream moment is, is, is beautiful. And like, I'm really interested in how dream, anything dream related in a piece of art, film or book is, I think, challenging and I think can be really bad. And <laughs> well, the, um, the, the cliche would be, and this was all, it's all, a, a, all dream, a dream. Of course. Shigeru yeah, was right. You right. can't, you can't, you right. can't do that. But, but to, to, it was so him describing that dream was mm. incredibly compelling to me. You, you get um, the impression at the end, that last performance that that might be the first time he's told his wife, one of his dreams in yeah, a hell of a long time. He's right. got time to sit and think about his dream mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. that he's retired. Yeah. She literally says that to him, you know, what does she like, say? She, he says um, she asked him how he slept because it's like one of his first days actually retired and she asks him how he slept and he says I don't know I had dreams and she says well you got time for him now right would you, you know anything right. interesting right. and he says well there always is to the party concerned you know <laughs> he kind of rebuffs her yeah. when she asks about it and then he finally kind of give then he finally kind of goes into it well that's the thing yeah. a dream is only interesting if you're in it is what kind of say. That's yeah. what they say. I don't. I am fifty-fifty on that. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of biased. I mean, I'm writing a book that has got a lot of dream stuff in it, so I'm sort of realizing how easily it can veer into cheesiness. Mm. Um, you have to be how, sensitive. Yeah, you got to be very. It's very. It's like working with. I feel like it's like working with. Um, I don't know if you were a painter and you had some very delicate pigment, you know, you normally you're swabbing away with oils or whatever. And then you got this one pigment that if you don't handle it just right, it'll kind of it'll, fall it'll away. Set the, the fuck up the other canvas on or, fire or something. Or something. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of what it feels like a little hmm. bit. And you're like, Oh, got to be careful with this. That I, um, I, I'll tend to agree there. The it, other thing that I saw when I was over there was the Freud museum. Oh, I went I to re- the Freud Museum. That he he really spent the cool. last two years of his life roughly in London in exile from the mm-hmm. Nazis. And right. his and he had recreated his room. I mean, this is Germain, right? We're talking yeah, about dreams. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and his room was exactly what you would expect. It was just almost like a theater. Right. Uh, right in the sense right. that you were coming to see the wise old man and, mm-hmm. and he was going to help you help yourself and everything. And all of the, we will get back to, um, to the film, but again, pertinent, the, mm-hmm. his desk was very famous for having all of the statues. So we had all these Greek mm-hmm. and Egyptian and ancient, and there was stuff all over and it was red and lush and, yeah. uh, carpets and, you know, carpeting and the whole thing. And, um, I took a couple of things away from that. I had always divorced uh, Jung from Freud much more than that room and that experience would suggest. I had always assumed Freud had been, or in my reading of him, it's not like I've read his work in total, but I've read at least one biography. I had always assumed, you know, he's much less interested in 
those archetypes and those ancient images completely yeah. false. He had right. he had these idols on his desk. He probably I don't know like a hundred of right. little oh, statues God. all over his desk. Right, right, uh, right. Yeah, it's it's easy <laughs> to remember Freud as like the rationalist and Jung is like the wild, but they like literally they had some kind of like structural disagreements that were yeah. The the other thing that I that I really love to see was that they still have the porcupine on the desk. Do you know about the porcupine? Yeah, I do. Mm. Yeah. That's an interesting well explain it. So well, it's, it's yeah, interesting yeah, for the podcast analogy. Yeah. Nineteen oh nine the Freud was in in America, and I may get dates wrong here, uh, but I think that was the year. And the American psychoanalysts uh, gave him a porcupine. So I, and I and I and I never understand. Well, I guess it depends, you know, how the how it's framed. But it's the porcupine's dilemma, uh, or the hedgehog's dilemma, mm-hmm. and it comes from Schopenhauer, and it is a metaphor or an analogy an analogy for human intimacy. So. Humans are like the porcupine in winter. We crave attention from each other. We crave the warmth that would come from getting as close to each other as we possibly can. So in winter, we're cuddling together, uh, but we all have these spines. And if we're not careful, we're going to jab each other in the eye mm-hmm. or jab each other in the in mm-hmm. the back or whatever it is. And that mm-hmm. is what defines our psychology in terms of intimacy. So we were all negotiating that at all mm-hmm. times. And they gave him that and it sat on his desk and it, and it still sits there. That's, and, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, and, and I nerded out when I saw it. I was sure. like, oh my God. And there's this poor French woman next to me. I'm like, I'm like, the the porcupines. Jabbing <laughs> <laughs> her. The American. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, hey, the porcupine. I mean, how perfect is that? I'm the loud American going, the porcupines at the desk. I went and I talked to the staff and they're like, yeah, yeah. Well, and they told me some, <laughs> something very cool, so not to belabor this, but I, oh. I had assumed that it was uh, taxidermy for mm. whatever. When I saw it, it looks like taxidermy somehow. And no, it turned. I think it was a statue, and all of the quills, a bronze statue, and all the quills were put in. And apparently when you run your hand along its back, it makes this kind of like tinkling music. It's almost oh. like this little... So man, another thing you're in, and that yeah. was that was I could walk to that from where I was staying. That's pretty cool. Uh, that's a yeah. cool. Place. That's a place that I would like to visit as well. That sounds really. That sounds really neat. Yeah, man. Yeah. D- dreams. Huh. Dreams operate on that level, and I don't know yeah. about the the quote unquote criticism of yeah. this film. I can understand that if you go in thinking it's going to be a, a like kind of a normal Western yeah. action film, you're going to leave feeling funky. Yeah. Yeah, but see the thing is I feel like it 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 I think one of the beauties of it is the film actually works on a, it doesn't work on like the action movie level necessarily, but it works on the like I feel like it works I feel like it works on the sort of the suspense level, mm-hmm. the sort of like stakes are high, violence and all that kind of level. Um well you're left caring yeah. about the wife until the very end if you oh, have anything yeah. like a heart. Right, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and you are left with this sort of like kind of wondering about like, is there some kind of weird like sort of are thing have things changed, have things gotten worse, or are they always been like or have they always been like this? And which of those two is worse? Right? Like, is it more hopeless if there's some accelerating chaos, or is it more hopeless that it's always been this way and it always will be? I don't, you know, I don't know. 
Yeah, I think about that scene where he's talking, the sheriff is talking to the sh- uh, the sheriff from another county, the county where Llewellyn Moss, they find Llewellyn Moss dead. And they just have this conversation where it's like, where the other sheriff says something like, well, uh, well, I think as soon as you stop hearing sir and ma'am, that's, uh, that's when it's all going to something like when you stop hearing sir and ma'am, that's when it's all going to hell, you know, you're like, that can't be true, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just but, like one lawman talking to another trying to say something right. about the weather. Right, 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 right. This yeah. is who we are and this is what we believe. There's that scene where the Tommy Lee Jones character gets this close to Shigur. Yeah. And yeah. you're caring about him. Yeah. And then he doesn't and it's, he's in another hotel room and it's just – it merits another – watch mm. oh yeah after 11 a.m so get yourself an egg mcguffin in the morning <laughs> right that's right fuel up yeah <laughs> brad we could go for another two hours i know yeah. but yeah. this yeah. has been another episode of get this the podcast about things people love will you come back my friend yeah, in a couple of months man. yeah right. absolutely do it it's start, been a pleasure man all right start thinking about what we're going to talk about next time we'll do we'll all do. right my brother Talk to you soon, man. Later. Bye-bye. Thank you.